0: Have come looking for some hope. I'm glad that you're with us today. If you don't know why you find yourself at church this morning or this afternoon or this evening, this Sunday, this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever you are streaming uh, this worship service, I believe it's because what we've just declared is that His promise still stands. Great is his faithfulness. Boldly we can approach the throne of Jesus. Welcome to Lake Avenue Church. And welcome to the beginning of our next series in the book of Nehemiah. And Pastor Chuck has so beautifully already introed that. I think back to my childhood and I think about the, the safety tips that were Uh, just put into my mind at a young age. And I'm realizing that some of those phrases that were present in my upbringing are not present in my children's upbringing. They've been replaced. Makes me a little humbled and to understand my great privilege to know that uh, when I was growing up in Ventura, California, that I needed to remember stop, drop, and roll. I I needed to remember that if for some reason I caught on literal fire, that I knew the steps needed to get rid of that fire. At an early age, that was taught to me. It was championed in our classrooms. We also had other quippy statements that had to do with earthquakes, about getting under the desk. And as I've reflected on those phrases, recognizing that the most The realities that face the children in our world aren't stop, drop, and roll. They're phrases like, see something, say something. I I don't know if I knew that phrase before 9-11, but I know that in the last week, it has shown up, whether it be in harassment training Here at Lake Avenue Church, if I have seen it as people reflect on the state of our world, what happened in the Capitol, uh, when you're at an airport, or you're at a mall, or just going about your normal life, if you see something that feels odd or out of place, that we have an obligation to say something. See something, say something. Now, can can we be honest That the reality is, for adults, most of us, that we really only want people to say something if they see it the way we see it. And we really hope that when someone says something, they're saying what I want them to say. But a lot of our uh, paralysis as adults in this world that we live in is in our inability to have discussions about what we are seeing. And we just want to say what, say nothing, say something. And I'll admit to you, I find that that has shown up even in uh, the church, our church. So you come to a Sunday after there's an insurrection uh, uh, at the Capitol. And some of you are, Jeff, you better say something. And you better say what I want you to say. And Jeff, you better not say something. Don't say what I don't want you to say. And I am going to say some things, but I want to just remind you, or maybe inform you, about how I view my role. I am a pastor, not a politician. I am well-versed in the scriptures, not the U.S. Constitution. I am someone who has something to say, but through the filter of the Word of God, in the primary way in which we will come to ask the Lord Jesus, what does he want us to see, so that we know what to say. We'll come through the scripture first. I want to remind you of our Lake Avenue Church vision statement. Presenting each one complete in Christ. We had a new members orientation yesterday. I had the privilege to sit with many people who want to become new members of Lake Avenue Church. And when I got to this, this uh, vision statement, each one complete in Christ, we jumped right to Colossians 1.28 and twenty nine which is the scripture we use to back this vision up. He, being Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And it's to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And I have to tell you that that to this end I strenuously contend has meant something more deep to me this past week than I can recall. I have strenuously contended to understand the scriptures in the book of Nehemiah. I have strenuously sought to understand and to see what is happening around us. I have strenuously contended to be in prayer and to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us at Lake Avenue Church in this moment, this unique moment, of a surge of COVID-19 in our immediate community, in the realities that come with a transition of administration and power, the state of our nation. And I'm even mindful, because we are a global church, of just how broad and difficult the issues are in this world. It's possible that when we see so much, we have become numb. And that's why Nehemiah is so critically important for us Because what we will see today is the one thing you can for sure say about Nehemiah is that the more he saw the difficulty of what was happening around him and what was happening in the city of Jerusalem, what was happening in the temple, and it had been happening for years. He wasn't numb. He somehow remained tender enough. To be in that moment, to strenuously contend with all the energy that God would give him to be used by God. Now, I've got to give us some some understanding, some context of how we come to Old Testament texts like Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of, I think, ten books in the Old Testament that is Old Testament history. It's a history book. It's not a prophecy How do we read ancient history? I would say this, as listening to some who have platforms like me, I'm afraid that in recent years it feels to me that somehow the way Christians are told and taught to come to the Old Testament is like the Da Vinci Code book or movie that we read what God did in history and we piece together a code and in it somehow find our secret marching orders for how we're supposed to live now. So Nehemiah did this and said this and we need to do this and say this because Nehemiah did and then we go to ch- and it's just been used frankly to justify a lot of very odd response to what it means to be found faithful in this historic moment. When you read the Old Testament history and prophecy I need you to understand, Israel is Israel. The United States of America is not Israel. The, 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 what God was doing in the people of Israel was for a moment to demonstrate to the rest of the world who God is. He doesn't, he doesn't still have a special nation with a new name. We have to come to understand, to read these scriptures as what, how God has moved in history. And here's the beautiful thing about the Bible. The Bible has teeth. The Bible has power. And so we can read historically a book like Nehemiah and we can find its application. We can find ourselves in this story, but we have to find it the right way. We can't start applying and mixing up names And saying, this is like this person, and this is this person, and these. And and that works for prophetic books too. We don't just get to pick and choose when we like the instructions to Israel and we don't like the instructions to Israel, and say, we now have to do it this way and not do it this way. It gets complicated when you bring kind of a, I think what we've seen this week, what we've been seeing, is it gets really complicated when you bring a filter of nationalism to the scripture. What God was doing with Israel, he selected a particular group of people at a particular moment in time to demonstrate to the nations who he is and what his ways are like. And what we will see in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah was very aware. So these walls are not just walls. They're bigger than walls. And we'll get to that in a moment. So don't come to this text, especially in a week that has, where we're soaking in news and believe that when I say, and we look at the scripture and it says Jerusalem, that we're talking about Washington DC. Don't come to this text when we see the, the temple being referenced, that that somehow is the White House or the Capitol. That's not the way this works. Yahweh is Yahweh, God is God. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Don't try to come into this text and figure out how democracy might work or the president or not president. The reality is this text in Nehemiah comes at a very low and difficult time for the people of God in Israel. They had this promise from God that it was through them that God was gonna show the world. It was through them that God was going to call the nations to himself, that they had this covenant relationship with God and it wasn't looking good, and it hadn't looked good for about 140 years, maybe, maybe 200 years. Nehemiah comes in a time of exile, where the, 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 the Israel has lost all of its power, all of its influence. First, the Babylonian Empire took over Israel, destroyed Israel, and then eventually where we find Nehemiah is now we have a, um, a Persian Empire, that has overtaken the Babylonian Empire. And what we know about the Persian Empire is they still ruled and reigned over the Israelites and the people of God, but they were a little bit more friendly towards people being able to, foreign people to be able to keep their religion. Now Ezra and Nehemiah for for centuries were one book. And if you want to read the full story of this time period, you're going to need to read them together. But Ezra and Nehemiah, there are three people three movements that happen in this time of exile to rebuild. First, we have Zerubbabel, and his whole message in the first six chapters of Ezra, he led the effort to rebuild the temple. Then we have Ezra, and and essentially Ezra's movement was to rebuild the people, the people of God. Ezra knew the scriptures, and he was teaching the scriptures. He was bringing people back to understand who God is through God's word. And then we have Nehemiah. Nehemiah is this third kind of rebuilding movement in this time of exile for Israel. And Nehemiah leads this effort to restore and to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Well, we're going to read the scripture in a moment, but I want you to see a couple of slides so that you can wrap your brain around where Nehemiah was and where Jerusalem is. So, this first picture is a map. I want you to see that over on, uh, well, if you're looking at it like I'm looking at the right, is the city of Susa. This is where we're going to meet Nehemiah in a moment. But look at his journey all the way back to Jerusalem. That's where the temple is, and that's where the walls around Jerusalem are shattered. But for chapter 1, right now we are in Susa. Next week in chapter 2, we're going to start seeing the journey begin for Nehemiah to get back to Jerusalem. All of this, remember that Israel is not a sovereign nation at this time. They're under foreign rule, and Nehemiah plays this very unique and specific role in what's happening back in the city of God, Jerusalem, in the temple, the place where God's presence was uh, consecrated to, again, be a demonstration of who he is. The next picture I want you to see and. Uh, Chuck got a a better picture of the real walls. This is an image of what the restored walls would end up looking like around the city of Jerusalem and the temple. So I want you to get a picture of that. We live in a very uh, different uh, uh, country. Uh, We went on a road trip this uh, summer, and when you cross from one state to another, you might get a sign. And this is in the ancient world, and at this time, this is the way you knew you've landed somewhere else. The walls of the city, and the walls had a very specific purpose, obviously for safety and for vulnerability and for sovereignty. But I wanted you to get a picture of what we're talking about as we get into some things. So why, why Nehemiah? Why have we chosen Nehemiah? One, the title of this series is Courageous Faith. I think what we are going to see is that Nehemiah is a worthy example of what it means to have faith in difficult circumstances with difficult assignments. And the one thing I know for sure is that 2020 and 2021 are difficult environments and difficult circumstances, and the call for you and to me is to be found faithful. And we need scripture, and we need examples of what faithfulness looks like, especially in moments where everything around us would suggest the opposite. And what we are going to see over and over and over again in Nehemiah are examples of being courageous and being faithful over and over again. And I believe that there are lessons we can learn by looking at Nehemiah and how he lived out his faith and his mission with God that will empower you and me in very similar ways in the, in the time we are living. The issues in Nehemiah are significant and they apply as well. I don't know how far we're going to get into this book, but but just some of the things that Nehemiah was, uh, was dealing with. One, the, the state of the wall, the physical building of, of the city and the temple, they were not in good repair. There was a stewardship issue. But I think what you're also going to see if you, if you travel far enough in Nehemiah is that it feels like a, a shift at the end where Nehemiah gets really, uh, really angry. In fact, pulls people's hair out um, over... People who are people of God, the people of God from Israelites who are marrying in other other foreign, uh, uh, so a, a faithful Jew marrying someone from another, and what that was about was about the purity of the religion and idol worship, and how common it was for people to begin to mix the living God and His ways with other ways. Because that's not just Nehemiah's context. When we take God's ways and start mixing them with other things, it's hard to discern what is true, and what is good, and what is right. And I think we live at that time, too. So we're going to begin in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. If you have a copy of Nehemiah, I really do encourage you to keep your Bible open, not just for this moment, but for the rest of this message, because we will come back to these 11 verses over and over again. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome god who keeps the covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants the people of israel i confess the sins we i confess the sins we israelites including myself and my father's family have committed against you we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people are the, at the farthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. There are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated title of this sermon is Clear Eyes, Full Heart. You Friday Night Light fans are wondering where the last part of that is. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And as I told my friend over text, uh, to use that full phrase would be uh, really misleading what the text says. But the concept of clear eyes and full heart under the guise that we're looking at lessons from Nehemiah just from the onset. I think what we can see in Nehemiah in these first 11 verses is an example of how people of God are to see and how people of God are to feel, how to use their eyes and their hearts, recognizing that you and I live at a time where the distance between the head and the heart is more than just the head to the heart. And the distance between what we see and what we feel, see and what we know, that can be the largest distance many of us travel every day. And I think uh, Nehemiah gives us a great example of what it looks like to have clear vision, clear eyes, to see situations the right way, and then respond with the full heart, the fullness of who God has made us. So in this text, what we find is Nehemiah describing the time and the place he is in, Kislev, about November, December of this particular year, he's in the city of Susa, we've looked at that map, and he has a conversation with his brother. And in that conversation, he says, how's the remnant? How's that group of, um, of our people who've remained in Jerusalem? And how's the city doing? And the report back from his brother was not good. The report back was the people are discouraged and not in a good place, and the report back is that the walls around the city are in shambles, and we see immediately some examples when we get hard news, when we begin to see difficult circumstances that people are in and difficult circumstances that cities are in, countries are in, we see that the first thing that Nehemiah did was get some clear eyes. I want you to to understand what exactly he saw. And then we can look at how he came to see. One, he saw the condition of his people, of the people, of God. But he also heard about the condition of the walls. Now, what's up with these walls? Because they're more than just walls. And I, I need you to hear this. You will read commentary after commentary. You will hear sermon after sermon that talk about the significance of the walls because if the walls are down, then the, 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 the city is open to being taken over. And yes, that's true. That if the walls are down, the city is vulnerable. And for protection, that, that, that these walls need to be up. And, and I would say that's true. But I also think there's an even more true reality that Nehemiah knew. Because I don't think God uh, built up walls around the city of Jerusalem just for defense and for army purposes. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, there's, in verse 42, 41-42, understand why God built a temple, why God had a city. Because God's heart wasn't to build a nation and to protect a people. God built a city and a temple to declare to the nations who he is. So when Solomon is dedicating the temple, it says, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray toward this temple. And they will then hear from heaven, your dwelling place, do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as your own people Israel, and may know that this house I built bears your name. God from the beginning when he built his temple and the city of God in Jerusalem wasn't just to protect his people. He built a temple and a city so that anybody who came from far away would know who he is. It would demonstrate to the rest of the world who this people's God is, not how strong this people is. And so when I believe when Nehemiah hears the state of the walls, he's not just moved by the condition of his people, he's moved by the reputation of his God. He's moved by the condition of what, when people come to that city, what do they think of his God? If the the walls are tattered, what does that say? Is this really the mighty God? Is this really the God that I mean, looks like they've been overtaken by the Babylonians and, 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 and now this Persian empire? I mean, it's tattered. What kind of God do these people have? And I would argue that Nehemiah is moved and what he sees when he asks about the condition, not only of the people, but of the city is because he's concerned about the reputation and the condition of how God was being perceived by foreigners. The temple and the city of God was not built to be an exclusive experience to Israel. It was built to declare to the world and to the nations who God is. And what nations think about Yahweh, when they see some crumbled walls, moved Nehemiah. I want you to see that his clear eyes, his vision, came through tears Oftentimes, our ability to see comes through pain, comes through tears. It says in verse 4, when he heard about the condition of his people and the reputation of his God, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Nehemiah was so disturbed by what he heard that his response was to cry. Now, here's what I find super Interesting. None of this is new news to Nehemiah. The state of the city and the people have been in that state for about 140 years. Chances are he already knew the condition, but but his heart had never grown numb. His clear eyes came through tears. When he heard these things, he sat down and wept. I'll ask you in a moment, when's the last time you've heard some things that have caused you to just sit down and weep? The other thing I want you to see is that Nehemiah's clear eyes clear eyes took time. It, it's not a throwaway detail in verse one, when it says, "In the month of Kislev in the 20th year." That's marking time. It's kind of November, December, next week in chapter two, when Nehemiah actually takes another step of courage, that doesn't happen until like March. Which means that he sat and he wept, and as the scripture says, that he prayed, that he fasted, that he mourned, that he sat in that difficult place for months. He didn't just glance at some tears based on a headline he got from his brother. The reality of the condition of his people and the reputation of his God moved him to months of weeping and prayer and fasting. And mourning. Sometimes we need to see clearly, and the, way, the road to seeing clearly will involve taking time and will involve shedding tears. We see that in Nehemiah, and I believe that that is so applicable to you and to me that oftentimes why we can't have conversations about what we're seeing is because we're not mourning. We're not seeing the condition of All the people. We're not seeing the reputation of our God. And if we really start seeing those things in the moment we are living in, it will and should move us to tears and cause us to just be stopped in our tracks sometimes. I know we live in a world, I feel the pressure every time something happens in this world. Are you going to to tweet something, Jeff? Are you going to say something? We live in a world where in real time people can respond and sometimes the people of God just need to sit in it for a minute before they respond. Nehemiah sat in it for months. Clear eyes come through tears. Clear eyes come through time. Verse 4, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. David Platt has a a great comment on on this juxtaposition between Nehemiah's response to to fast before the Lord and the world you and I live in, where we hear bad news and we start formatting a response. Nehemiah heard terrible news about people and about his God, And he fasted. He didn't begin formatting the response right away. But we're so competent. Do we really need to hear from God before we know what our next step would be? Or have we already read that book? Have we already had somebody tell us what we're supposed to do? Fasting or formatting, Lake Avenue Church? I'm going to go with fasting. Lord, help us, because I believe it's in times of reflection and prayer and fasting and mourning that the distance between our eyes and our hearts can, can come a little bit closer, that if we move too quickly from, from the, the tears to the formatting a response, that to me is what causes numbness. That's where we go, yeah, I mean, it's been like that 140 years. I mean, we, we know that. Surely this isn't any different, or whatever justifications we use. Nehemiah is not numb. This issue is not new. And when he hears the report from his brothers, he sees it for what it is, the condition of his people and the reputation of his God, and he responds. After months, we have this record of, Of what I think his heart is, his full heart. The response of what happens in times of crying and tears and fasting and prayer is the fullness of heart begins to show up. There are three aspects of his prayer that I want you to see because Nehemiah's heart shows up throughout his prayer. And the first thing I want you to see is full heart's address full hearts address God. Listen to how he begins this prayer. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Right out of the gate Nehemiah has been moved by the condition of people, by the reputation of his God. He has wept, he has fasted, he has mourned, and he comes to address God as the great and awesome God, the God of heaven. When you hear difficult news about the condition of people, when you live difficult news about your own condition, who do you address? I think this is where that fasting and formatting thing comes to, to bite us a little bit. I hear something horrible, I start formatting a response. And in formatting a response, I actually believe that I am the one to address this particular issue and not, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear, God, be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. That is, that is too long for Twitter. We have to address as Nehemiah addressed... If we want hearts that line up with God's heart, we have to address the living God. He'll go on to say in this prayer that he is the great and awesome God. And you are going to see this phrase, the God of heaven, over and over and over again in the book of Nehemiah, because Nehemiah knew as dire as the situation was for the people, as difficult as the situation was with the condition of the walls and the reputation of his God, that yes, God was going to use him and we're going to watch God use him and it's going to be awesome, but he is very aware of the one who actually does the work, and it's the living God. Full hearts address God. And then the second part of this prayer you've got to see is full hearts confess to God. Address and confess. Listen to this. This is a radical prayer for some of us. The audacity of Nehemiah to take on somebody else's sin to corporately confess the sins of his people over history and time. When he says, I confess the sins we, Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. I need you to hear this because it is possible in our very individualistic culture that says, you can't speak for me, pastor. You can't speak for me, church leaders. Nehemiah addresses the great and awesome, the God of heaven, and he moves right to confession because he understands who he is and who his people are in comparison to who God is, and he knows that they have fallen short. Here's what I love. You know what he's not doing? He's not coming to God and saying, you know, man, these Persians, they're really oppressing our people back in Jerusalem. He's not praying that they're victims. He's praying that they've sinned. Because to have a full heart addresses God in the moment and a full heart confesses to God the shortcomings of, yes, our individual selves, but that God raises certain people at certain times to be able to come to him and to say, hey, this this prayer of confession is for all of us. We have not obeyed. Earlier this year, we had a time of confession in our church. And one of the common uh, responses, I had just a few conversations afterwards, was saying, yeah, how can you do that? Like, how can, how can you, Jeff, uh, confess something that I did not do? And, and my response is this. Uh, le- if I have one definition of leadership, it's this, is that leaders take responsibility for things that they may not be responsible for not really a question of if I did it or not, but a leader takes responsibility for things they may not be responsible for. Did did Nehemiah in that moment cause the walls to come down himself? No. Did Nehemiah in that moment have anything to do with what the remnant was experiencing? Was it something he did back in Susa that, that was impacting their condition? No. Did Jesus sin? No. But Jesus took responsibility for sin by putting it on himself, on the cross, dying so that you and I can be forgiven. In the model of Jesus, Jesus takes responsibility for something he's not responsible for because he comes and moves in that way. And as that is what we see in Nehemiah, it's what's modeled in Jesus, is that people and men and women of God are people who can take responsibility for things that they may or may not be responsible for. Enough of the conversation sometimes, whether I did it or didn't do it. Nehemiah is saying, "Hey, for my family, myself, and for all of us, we're, I'm, I'm really sorry. I think there's a lesson there for some. Full hearts address, full hearts confess, and full hearts and I need you to see this are filled by God's word. Nehemiah knew the Torah. Nehemiah knew those first five books of the Bible really well. Listen to how integrated the truth of God's word is into his prayer. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the furthest farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Nehemiah knew his Bible. Nehemiah, in a time of difficult news, Where the condition of the people and the reputation of his God, he was not offering generic prayers. He brought specifics to God. He addresses God for who God is. He confesses for who he and the people are. And he knows God's word and his ways and is bringing that truth back to God. It wasn't a a throwaway prayer of of anything generic. It was specific. It was saying, God, remember what you said to Moses? We're in a Moses moment here, Lord. So as you said there, we're asking you to do that now. Give me some favor. I'm about you, God. See, I know your ways. I I know what you've said. I I know what you've promised. I know what you you want to do in this world. And And Nehemiah captures that. And in his prayer, he's someone who addresses God, confesses to God, and you can see that he is a person who is filled by the word of God. Because when we are filled by the word of God, we don't have to just have generic responses. We can bring specifics. We're able to see what's happening around us and and not just be moved that that was generally terrible. No, we can say, no, that, that breaks the very heart of God. Because when I read this about who God is, that is, such a, that is such a visceral, clear demonstration of who God is not. So I can bring a specific to my prayer with God. It doesn't have to be general. That's a bummer. That looks hard. That was hard to watch. We can bring specifics to God as he's given them to us in his word. So I pray that the Spirit has applied this along the way but I have some questions for you and the question is are you seen clearly right now have you had enough tears has there ha- been enough time for you to sit in the condition of the people or the reputation of our God Stuart Stratton An old friend of mine has this um, uh, great resource called the Pastor's Workshop, and he wrote a letter to all the pastors who receive tools from him. And he says this, and I can't say it better, so I'm going to say it because I need you to understand what I'm seeing, what's caused me tears, what's taken up time. He talks about Wednesday, and he says, we ought not to recoil just from the images of January 6th, but from the symbols as well. Predominantly displayed against the backdrop of the Capitol building was a noose, presumably to represent the vigilante justice desired by some in the crowd as revenge for a stolen election. But the noose also represents the unjust and unlawful history of lynching in our republic and as a symbol of terror for African Americans. There was also the Confederate flag, carried by many in the crowd and waved throughout the Capitol building, an event historians have noted has never occurred in American history previously. There was also an individual who took down the American flag inside the Capitol and put up a Trump flag. Also present were a number of flags, tattoos, and clothing that symbolized white supremacist causes and groups, and just as conspicuous among the many symbols in that crowd were symbols of the Christian faith. Signs like Jesus saves, scripture verses, and flags were proudly lifted among the throng of protesters. Does that make you weep? that cause you to, (sighs) Confederate flag never been inside the Capitol? Come a long way from stop, drop, and roll. Is what happened on Wednesday, has it moved you to tears? You might need some more time for that. And I think that's okay. I think Jesus poses a pretty profound question to us throughout his ministry, and it applies today. Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? Have you wept over the right things? Nehemiah's example is that he wept for the condition of his people. He doesn't disassociate himself from his people. Remember, his prayer of confession is we. Nehemiah wept for the reputation and condition of the city of God. He wept for the reputation of Yahweh. And I'm telling you, when there's a mixture in some of those images of Scripture alongside Confederate flags, that should cause us to weep. I don't think those were missionaries that were sent in those moments to pop up pieces of truth. Nehemiah wept for the condition of the people Nehemiah wept for the reputation of the Lord. Who are you addressing in this moment? Does Nehemiah offer an example to to each one of us? He should. Have Have you uttered anything like this this week? Lord, the God of heaven. The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, people of Israel. Have you prayed anything like that? Are you confessing anything? Or are you too quick to go? Well, I, I, I didn't do that. I mean, that's not me. I, mean, I wasn't there. I, I disagree with how far it went. Are, 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 you, are you too busy going, those people? I mean, I, I, I'm not even in the vicinity. People of God, men and women. We have a savior in Jesus who takes responsibility for things he wasn't responsible for. And he says things to us like, there's no greater love than someone who would lay down their life for another. He says things to us like, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Maybe 2021 would be a year where we can stop having conversations about whose fault something is, but enter the problem corporately and together and to confess. And what we'll see in chapter 2 is, starts with confession, but there's great work to be done, and I'm looking forward to being part of that work, too. I think this is one of the single most attributes that God might be building in his church, that a mature follower of Jesus is someone who can confess not just for themselves, but for the people. I see that model in Jesus, and I pray that you see that model in me. Nehemiah was filled with the word of God. What are you being filled with? I fear that we are filled with memes. We are filled with Twitter. We are filled with uh, one sentence, inspirational quotes or judgmental quotes. We're filled with images. And I believe that what God is asking us to do at Lake Avenue Church is, as Nehemiah was, to be filled with by the word of God. So that when we come to him in prayer, when we see the condition of the people, when we see the reputation of our God, when we address God, when we confess to God, that we can offer very specific prayers for God to be who God says he is. Some of you don't know this. Um, I think it might be why I, I like being at Lake Avenue. Um, what's the word I want to... I want to use a prodigy (laughs) i've been listening to a podcast about a soccer prodigy if i reflect on my adolescence i was a political prodigy at 15 years old there was an incident at my high school that resulted in a student dying the city responded and said we want to look at how our campus is laid out how we can create more safety on our campus and we should have a high school student a part of that so at 15 years old I would put on my tie every other week for about a year as I was a formal member of a a mayor's committee that was looking at school safety. I would then in my junior and senior year of high school be in student government where I was regular, had a seat. I got the gavel the whole nine up in my office that I was a student representative on the school board. I was going to community college. And at that point, there were about three businessmen who approached me at 19 years old and said, we think you should run for city council and we'll, we'll figure this out. And I think at that point, I just liked hanging out with students and being a youth pastor. I said, no, but, but in the back of my mind, I really enjoyed being in these environments where people would hash things out. And I remember a conversation I had that, that burst my bubble. I was about 17 years old, and I was having a conversation with the mayor of Ventura at the time. Now, mind you, I was a youth group kid. I was in student government at school, and so much of the innocence of student government and leadership at church was the concept that you should be a team. You should trust one another. You should like one another, the people you're serving with. And so an incredible amount of resource goes in to team-building activities and making sure that you understand one another and trust one another. And there was a tension on the city council in Ventura at that time that seemed so insurmountable to me, but at 17 years old, I said, this is a trust issue. This, this is a trust issue. So my naive self went to the mayor, and in a conversation I said, I know that this city councilman is having trouble with these two city. Hey, I could do some team building between these city council people, and maybe at the end we'll see each other and we can get to the real solution on this problem. And I remember the mayor, who was a Christian, talked about faith. He said, I, I don't need them to get along because we already have the votes, there's nothing about this one person's demeanor that matters, really, because at the end of the day, we've got enough votes to do what we need to do. And there was something in that moment that shattered this utopian image of the, that, that maybe just maybe human relationship was more important than, than anything else. And I remember in that moment being really put aside, because it was the first moment where I, I wasn't the kind of kid who... On Friday night would be doing something and then I would come to church on Sunday and be a different person I was really trying to live an integrated life that everywhere I went that my faith in Jesus was showing up and what I saw in that moment was that at least in that circumstance faith in Jesus the idea of relationships reconciliation of getting along of being one in unity that there was an environment where that wasn't needed Lake Avenue Church, I'm just wondering how many environments are like that for followers of Jesus? Do we, do we just talk unity here at, at, at the institution of church? Or do you believe that God has placed you in the positions he has placed you, in the neighborhoods he's placed you, in the businesses and in the families he's placed you, so that what is broken around you through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through Christ living in you, that you would be agents of reconciliation that you would be the people who say, even though this might not be needed, it's not right. 2021, there's a lot of brokenness, Lake. There's a lot of brokenness in, in our world, in our country, in our bodies. And I believe that if we can hang in there and get some lessons from Nehemiah over the next many weeks, that we'll be more equipped to be found faithful in this particular moment. So I'm praying for you this week. I'm praying that you would have clear eyes that you'd cry a lot if you need to, that you'd sit for a little bit in what's, what's happening, but that your heart would be full too, that you would address the living God, that you would confess to the living God, the state of yourself and this world we live in, and that you would be filled by God's word so that not only your prayers can be specific, but that your life can be specific. We need your help to live this way, Jesus. Move, Holy Spirit. Amen.